You're listening to the official Dietitian Connection podcast. This podcast gives you access to the most successful and influential experts in the dietetic profession. This podcast will inspire you, it will challenge you, and it will empower you to become a nutrition leader and realize your dreams. Welcome to today's Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Marie Ferguson and I'm the Director of Dietitian Connection. It's my pleasure to welcome Professor Peter Williams to the Dietitian Connection podcast today. Peter is an adjunct professor of nutrition and dietetics at the University of Canberra and an honorary professorial fellow at the University of Wollongong. He has over 35 years of professional experience, having worked as a Chief Dietitian and Food Services Manager at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. He is also the Director of Scientific and Consumer Affairs at Kellogg's and most recently coordinator of dietetic training at the University of Wollongong. Peter's also been an invited member of several NHMRC working parties for reviews of the Dietary Guidelines for Australia and the Nutrient Reference Values, and is currently a member of the Advertising Standards Boards of Australia. Peter is a fellow of the Dietitians Association of Australia and was president for two years. It's my pleasure to welcome Professor Peter Williams. So it's my pleasure today to welcome Professor Peter Williams to the Dietitian Connection podcast. Um, I've been in awe of what Peter's done over his magnificent career. I think as dietitians, we have the benefit of being able to have multiple careers within a career, and um, Peter has certainly done that, having worked in a number of different areas, and I'm excited to talk to him about his different opportunities that he's had over the years in, in the different roles. So, welcome, Peter. It's great to have you on the Dietitian Connection podcast today. Thanks. Great to be here, Murray. So, I wanted to sort of go back to where you started, which wasn't originally as a dietitian. So, I know you originally studied biochemistry and worked as an experimental officer with CSIRO, the Division of Animal Health. So, I was just wondering what made you change your mind and become a dietitian? Well, I, my, those job, that job I had with CSIRO was pretty much a laboratory-based job working with cattle tick immunology. And although it was interesting work as a biochemist, it didn't really take me in contact with people very much, except for a few people in the lab. And I was really wanting something, I think, that involved more of a people orientation and probably looking back, also wanting to use my natural interest in food because I always enjoyed cooking and food. So that work didn't have any that particular relevance. And I had read Rosemary Stanton's work um, in magazines and always been impressed by how she brought science together with a very um, practical and interesting approach to to food. And it was really that that made me um, think about dietetics. I actually went, I was working in Brisbane at the time, went off to the university careers advisory thing and picked up a little brochure about, you know, what you need to do to become a dietitian. So I actually had to go back and do physiology. I went and did a couple of subjects of physiology at QUT because I didn't have that in my undergrad degree. And um, I then went off travelling, actually, and then came back and did dietetics. So it was really to try and move into an area more involved with people and mm. a bit more practical. Mm. It's interesting. So many careers as dietitians, I think, started with Rosemary because I would say mine, yeah. is, mine was. <laughs> was sole, well, I wouldn't say a sole voice, but she was by far the most public one. And there weren't very many public dietitians at that time. I no. mean, I now know there were others, but as an outsider, mm. she was the sole person I was aware of. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So since then, uh, you've had, as I said, many different careers within dietetics. Can you talk to me a little bit about your career journey from becoming a dietitian um, 
and the different positions you've held? Sure. Um, Well, I studied dietetics at Sydney Uni, and at that time it was um, a one-year postgraduate diploma course. It was a great year. In fact, there were four men in my year of 20, which was an unusually high proportion. and it was it was at the transition of the profession being run by non-dietitians to being taken over by dietitians, or becoming a more professional course anyway. Up until that time, a lot of it had been hospital-based training. The two university or the three university courses had really just started. And in my year, um, Stuart Trussell arrived as the new professor. So it was the first time there was a dedicated professor of that program um, and there was Mark Balquist, a deacon as well, appointed at much the same time. Um, after that course, but Joe Rogers, who'd been the chief dietitian of Prince Alfred, was a key coordinator of the course um, through the time that I was there, as was Fred Clements, who had been previously the chief medical officer at WHO, has written a book about history of nutrition in Australia, uh, had worked at the Academy of Science on a lot of the early Australian nutrition surveys and did a lot of work in iodine in in Tasmania. Anyway, he was one of our lecturers there and Joe as well, and they were probably key people that influenced me. And after I'd finished the course, Joe basically created a job for me at Prince Alfred. This was in the days well before um, uh, equal employment opportunities and proper advertising of jobs, I think. So she wanted to create a job for a food service dietitian. There really wasn't one. And so she created a position that was half food service, half clinical, and invited me to take on the job. I wasn't particularly interested in food service at that time. I think I'd probably done okay in it as a subject, but it wasn't necessarily what I was thinking of as a future. Um, but I came into that role and really um, grew under her mentorship. She, she was my mentor, really, Joe Rogers, a fantastic um, person. And, and I started off in that joint role. And then after three years, so I did clinical work as a cardiology dietitian for three years there. After that, I left PA because of, uh, Lynn Stewart, who was another dietitian um, uh, who was interested in food service, had set up in a, an American-based company called Advanced Food Systems International, which ran food services in private hospitals and nursing homes throughout Australia. And she was expanding and wanted another dietitian working with her. And I went and worked in that company for uh, three years, I think it was. And that was a fantastic learning opportunity. I learned about management in a very practical way. Uh, you know, I was thrown in to manage food services at Rockhampton for a month, um, as well as doing a lot of sales work, you know, developing proposals mm-hmm. for taking over hospitals, a lot of staff planning and financial management. So it was a great practical learning experience in a, a private sector setting, which I hadn't had any exposure to up until then. Mm-hmm. And then I came back to PA when the deputy food service manager left and took over that role and was deputy to Joe. When she retired, I became chief dietitian as well as food service manager. So I had that dual clinical and food service mm-hmm. role and was also head of allied health for a while. So I sort of grew in that that role at, um, at PA. Um, and while I was at PA, I actually was looking around for trying. At that time, I was thinking food service was where I wanted to go and what sort of additional training could I get. And there was no training in Australia. There was some in America, of course, particularly at Kansas University. Um, 
but I ended up doing a Master of Health Planning um, part-time at New South Wales. And as part of that, we had to do some um, research proposals. That's one of the subjects. And I did one on measuring food preferences. At least I had to write a proposal for how I'd do it. And then I, I, I started doing it and that became the start of the PhD program. And I did my PhD over nine years part-time while I was working full-time at the hospital. So I used to sort of spend Sundays in there and, you know, anyway, it took a long time but it got done. Um, and that PhD um, really led me into what I spent most of my later career in, I suppose, as an academic particularly. Um, and then I left PA to go to Kellogg's and that was another step into the private sector that was probably a bigger change than any other up until then. Um, a position had become available for this scientific director at the time. It was in charge of both research, um, product develop, well, was involved in product development and marketing, uh, but also consumer affairs, so looking after consumer inquiries and complaints, perhaps the less interesting or less appealing part of the job, actually. Um, but again, that was a fantastic learning experience. I did it with some trepidation because, as you're probably well aware, a lot of people who thought working for multinational food companies was like going to the devil. That's right. Um, and I guess I, I had that same trepidation when I went there. So were you looking for that position or did they approach you? No, they approached okay. me. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, and I thought, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really thinking about it at all. Mm -hmm. But I I'd had known Effie Pharmacolitis, who'd been in the position beforehand, um, and had appreciated and always been impressed by her scientific rigor and mm -hmm. intellectual honesty. And so I thought, well, you can do that in that sort of role. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, the money was good too. Mm -hmm. So and and actually learning. What I enjoyed most in that role was learning from the marketing people. Yeah. Um, I think as dietitians, particularly those working just in clinical areas, we often think of marketing as rather grubby and, um, you know, perhaps a bit flashy and shallow sort of mm. profession. Um, but what I found at Kellogg, which was very much a marketing-based company, was there was incredible depth of consumer research and rigour mm. to their planning, um, both of product development and marketing, which I think we don't always appreciate and mm -hmm. I was able to utilise because mm -hmm. I actually got quite a number of papers published there, particularly when we introduced folate into, for fortification. We did quite a lot of, I think, good um, market research about student uh, consumer attitudes and uptake of the messages and the products when, when um, folate fortification came in. We did stuff on uh, salt reduction as well. So... It was a position where you could actually get resources, mm -hmm. do research, mm -hmm. um, and have an interesting time. So on the other hand, I don't think it's the sort of job that a new graduate, personally, I don't think it's the sort of job a new, new graduate should take on because mm -hmm. you really have to be able to stand up for yourself mm -hmm. and argue and be prepared to walk away. Now, I was going in late-ish, well, late in the middle of my career, I guess, and I guess I always thought, well, if this doesn't suit me, I'm just going to go. If they don't like my advice, I don't have to stay here. Yeah. And um, and in the end, I did leave after three years, but it wasn't because of necessarily dissatisfaction with the work, but 
um, the position came up at University of Wollongong mm-hmm. and uh, I had known Linda Tapsell most of my professional career and I had always been involved in research even from my very first days at, uh, at Prince Alfred, had written papers, not very many but a couple each year from my early days as a dietitian and, and like the academic world. Um, and so I, I took the plunge then about 2000 to go to Wollongong, which of course was a bit far away from where I was living in Sydney. And I commuted down there by train for 10 years. Oh, wow. It's like a two hour commute each direction. Oh, gosh. It's a bit crazy, really, yeah. but it's. Um, you must have enjoyed it. <laughs> well, it used to be quite a nice train trip actually mm-hmm. through the National Park. But, mm-hmm. I, but I did reflect that all of my jobs, I, I ended up traveling further and further each one I took. Like oh, my wow. first, job, my first job in Brisbane, I was about a 10 minute drive from home. Yeah. And it's a two hour commute each way, my last job. Um, so going to Wollongong was really to take over the dietetic training program, really. Linda had, uh, had established the Smart Food Center uh, at that stage. And so it was much more, I mean, was still in charge, but was primarily focused on the research side and wanted to hand off the, the training, the dietetic training component, although she set it up. And so that was my role really for the next um, 10 years uh, until I went to semi-retirement anyway at that stage and then um, moved down to Canberra when we retired. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the arc of the mm-hmm. thing. Um, in terms of the work, it, it started off with a bit of clinical. There was a lot of food service in the middle. There was education. And I guess public health in the work that I did at uh, at Kellogg, I would mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. because I certainly got involved in um, food standards issues. Mm-hmm. And I had been the chair of the DAA Food Standards Advisory Committee for a number of years. So I'd, even before going to, certainly before going to Kellogg, had done a lot of submissions to Fazans about mm-hmm. food standards issues. And I'd, I'd always enjoyed that component. So out of all of that, was there a favourite job, favourite role, do you think? Or? Uh, look, I enjoyed all of them, but I think probably the work at University of Wollongong was probably the most natural fit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, academic life, it was interesting coming from uh, Kellogg, which was a very high-pressure job in a way. I think it had a very American attitude to work. I mean, it was the first place I'd ever been to where there were breakfast meetings at 7 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you were working long days. Um, and there were a lot of demands from the American head office about what should be done here. Coming to the university allowed much more individual freedom. I mean, pretty much I was setting the agenda about what I wanted to do each day and, and when I worked and, uh, and, and was, it was more creative in terms of, you know, changing the, the course. We created some new subjects. We created a new advanced dietetic diploma or certificate program. Um, and I really like working with the students. Um, so I certainly was able to do a lot more research and publish a whole lot more. I mean, I went to I went to that when I was fifth, no, well, fifty. So quite late in my career, and I guess I went thinking, well, I'm not going to be um, a career academic in the way that many people are. Who spend all their time, all their life at a university. I'm coming quite late. Um, I've got a lot of practical experience that I can share. 
but it allowed me the time to write and to do research, which I hadn't had in those other jobs. So I really enjoyed that and I enjoyed working with students. And I think one of my greatest um, um, achievements, not that it's a great one, a terribly important one, was to get as many dietetic students as possible published before they graduated. So I've just looked back over my thing and I've had about 50 students mm. who have ended up with a published paper um, as a result of projects they did that I supervised in dietetic programs. Mm. And I thought that was a really important mm. message to them that they could do it mm. and so come out and it's also, you know, good for the CV mm. for a graduating dietitian to already have a publication order. Yeah. So that's perhaps my proudest yeah, achievement. Yeah, that's very impressive. The other, the other one, which would be related to Kellogg, was um, the work we did on salt reduction. Okay. Um, you know, people spend a lot of time looking at things like labelling or education, but I think we can have our biggest impact on the food intake of people by changing the food supply. Mm -hmm. And we made substantial changes to the salt content of cereals when I was there. Um, not, I'm not saying it was all to do with me, but it was certainly part, I was part of that project and that direction that we were setting as one of the achievements for mm -hmm. when I was there. So that's something else that I mm. look on with pride. So in terms of that debate where, you know, should dietitians be working in companies based on what you just said, where would you sit on that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, as I, as I said, making a change to the food supply is probably the biggest change we can make to improve the health of people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I wouldn't downplay the risk of being co-opted. Uh, I mean, I, that, is a, that is a true risk. I think the work that Marion Nestle has done talking about, you know, how food companies influence dietary guidelines, et cetera, it is true. You know, they, they have a view and they have a, have a direction. Um, I mean, I've been in lucky to have been involved in a few of the um, reviews of dietary guidelines in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and I can see how contested that can be. I, I actually think the reviews that I was involved in have, were all pretty thoroughly and well done as they could have been at the time. They have got better over time. I've been, so I've been through about three iterations and the last one was much more thorough perhaps than some of the earlier ones. But that's just really an evolution of what we understand about evidence-based research and, and systematic reviews in a way. Um, but I think there is always the risk that food companies will want to naturally support their own products. Um, but, but I've worked with cereal companies. I've done work with MLA on red meat. Mm -hmm. And I think dietitians can do that rigorously. And I think you have to be in there to ensure that it's done properly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you've talked a lot about research and you've obviously um, research has been something you've been involved in from the very beginning but, mm. and you've encouraged diet, dietetic students to, to do research. So why do you think it's so important that diet, dietetic students and dietitians be involved in research? Well, I mean, fundamentally we say we're a science-based um, profession um, and we can't be a scientifically based profession unless we're actually doing science and under, and and extending our knowledge and direction. Mm -hmm. um, and practice-based research, I think, is 
perhaps where we need to be spending more time. I mean, there's a lot of research that gets done at universities and in areas like public health. I actually think clinical practice, although I'm not working much in that area anymore, not at all at the moment, um, the, the average person working in a clinical setting has great access to opportunities for research. And I would really in, encouraging people to do more of that because I think Everyone should hope, I think, throughout their career to do something that will change the direction of practice in the future. I think if you're just someone who says, well, I'm doing what is best practice and I'm just following the rules and keeping on going, that's all very well. But I think there's great personal reward when you can say, I've seen a problem and I've investigated it and I've made a change for the better that other people can pick up and follow. That That's what I see as what a real professional wants to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where you get your greatest satisfaction in yeah. seeing something that you leave behind that's new and an improvement. Yeah, definitely. And that can only come about through rigorous research. Yeah, totally agree. So in terms of your PhD research, can you tell us a little bit about what you did there and how, yeah. that, how that continued to be part of what you've done over the years? Sure. Well, I, it actually, it was about food in hospitals mm-hmm. in New South Wales, but it, it actually, it, it, it grew, as I said, from that project on food preferences that I did um, as part of my Master of Health Planning. And I interviewed, I did, a, I developed a survey basically based on some American ones looking at preferences that people had for food because I was talking, thinking about menus in hospitals and how little evidence there was for what was being put on menus in terms of what people wanted or what was good for them. And one component was food preferences. And we didn't have any data in Australia about what hospital patients wanted to eat or what they didn't want to eat. Um, So I did a survey. I did it 500 people, probably unnecessarily large, as it turned out. But anyway, um, did that at the hospital and published that. And then when I enrolled in the PhD, I was probably more interested in – I had done that before I enrolled in the PhD, but I then wanted – when I did enroll, wanted to look at um, particularly vitamin losses with – or nutrient losses anyway, it ended up being vitamins um, – with ch- cooked chill food service systems because they were coming in much more – I mean, they, they had already been at PA when I was working there, but they were becoming much more widely available with um, commercial systems involved and particularly long – life cooked chill systems where food was bagged and kept from, you know, maybe up to several weeks, not just a few days. And there was virtually no data on um, what the sort of nutrient losses were or with different reheating systems. So that was the focus of the the lab-based research that I did. So I did quite a lot of measurement. I did, I did a lot of observational work at 30 hospitals, first of all, looking about how the food was handled, what sort of temperatures it was exposed to, how long it was being held. And then I replicated that in the controlled settings to look at what the nutrient losses were and did it with vitamin C and folate. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to do B6 as well but never got the money to do the analysis. I, was, mm-hmm. I kept all the all the samples mm-hmm. but never got yeah. it. I was, that's one of my big regrets mm-hmm. actually. And I've chosen those three because they're quite labile nutrients in, in cooking generally. Um, and it was quite nice because at the end I could say a pretty simple conclusion that if you were going to hold the food hotter than 90 minutes, then you're better off with a cook chill system. Okay. If you were going to keep and, – and the interesting thing was that the losses cut off at about 90 minutes for both vitamin C and for folate. Okay. Um, so 
So it was nice to have a simple answer. Mm, you could say mm. to people, yeah, because people say, "Is which is better, right, cooked till exactly. fresh?" And, They're still and, asking that question, I think. <laughs> and I, well, and it, the answer is not always a nutritional one. But yeah. from a nutritional point of view, yes. you might say, if you have to hold it hotter longer than ninety minutes, you're better off going to cook till system. Mm, mm-hmm. Now, it may not be the best from an organoleptic and you know satisfaction quality point of view. I mean, I, I do. We did actually put a new hospital kitchen in when I was at PA and planned it and and we had a hybrid system of cook chill for some of the dishes and cook fresh for things that we thought well went better um, mm-hmm. you know if you can have grilled meat I think it's better fresh than yeah. but if you're going to have a, a wet dish yeah. cooks you know cook right. chill's fine right. so that's what we did now whether you can always afford that is you know, another issue but on top of that stuff about nutrient losses I looked at menus um, and so, so that was building on the work of um, what I'd done with food preferences. So I collected menus from all the hospitals in New South Wales or virtually all of them and looked at things like, well, how well did that reflect um, food preferences? What were the proportions of high salt and high fat foods on the menu? Um, and so tried to make some sort of evaluation of both the nutritional, the, around, the amount of choice and the food preferences as part of the, the menu assessment. Mm-hmm. So all of those components came together in the thesis eventually, which was sort of trying to look at, well, how do we maximise the quality of the food in, in mm-hmm. hospitals, both from a patient and a nutritional point of view. Mm-hmm. So it seems like a lot of dietitians aren't really interested in food service, and yet that's a real need in the in the community. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have a lot of dietitians, you know, managing food services in hospitals and aged care. Can you tell us why we should be involved and how to, why it's sexy? And <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it's sexy. Okay. I, think it is, I think it is challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when I was at PA, we, I had, I mean, one of the advantages in, in a hospital setting is it gives you some power because you actually have a budget that's fairly substantial. I mean, when I was at PA, we had about, when I first went there, about 400 staff in food services and 50 in dietetics. Mm. So it was a budget of $12 million or mm. so. So you were a substantial player mm-hmm. in, the, in the hospital administration and you could have a voice mm-hmm. to management because you were managing a big budget. I mean, one of the reasons I left partly was because over time, there was a continual decrease in our budget, which meant you're continually cutting or finding innovative ways to save money, which became rather com- competitive and rather soul-destroying over time. Yeah. But I think the part of the reason is when people think of food service, they do, and maybe this is the way we teach it, they do just think about hospital or yeah. institutional food yeah. services. And although that's important, that isn't where most people get their food. It, it's a substantial um, component, and it is important for people in nursing homes or prisons or hospitals where they have to get all their food there. But more and more, the average Australian is relying on other people to provide their food for them. They're not cooking at home as much. They're buying pre-prepared meals. They're going out to cafes and restaurants. Not, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people are. Um, so that's where we can have an impact on on what people are eating is in getting involved in that. And Sure, I would encourage people to get involved in the institutional settings. I think there's there's still plenty of work to be doing in improving the the quality and the challenges of just normal administration in that that sort of setting. But I think it's actually probably outside of those settings where we could be doing more interesting things. Mm-hmm. And and I don't see too many dietitians working there. I mean, there are some working in food companies. Um, there aren't too many in the 
self serve not the self-service, but the sort of fast food sector. I mean, there have been a few. And again, that's something that colleagues often criticise people about, which I think is a bit unfortunate because I think the people that have tried to work in those settings have really attempted to make positive changes but often find it difficult to um, sustain those with criticisms from within the profession. Yeah, I think there's a lot of untapped opportunities out there for us in the food service area. Yeah, and, I mean, I, and most dietitians come into dietetics because they are interested in food, you know, whether it's from cooking or just eating. Um, and so working with producers is is exciting and interesting and creative and innovative. Yeah. And so I, I think there's that's an area where I think our profession could expand in the future. Yeah, definitely. So now I know you're in semi-retirement. I don't is that still what you're saying? <laughs> oh yeah, pretty yeah? much. Okay, <laughs> but you're still very, very active. I know. So, what what are your current roles and things that you're doing? Well, I've actually stepped down from a lot of okay. um, committee work that mm-hmm. I had originally. Um, the only things that I'm really I've still got one PhD student. But I know we're, we're co um, supervising, who's almost finished. Yes. Um, I'm I'm still on the advertising standards board, which is something that I started fairly late. Um, I, I got approached to go onto that board. It's a really interesting um, board of 20 people that basically are looking at complaints about advertising. And what's interesting is how it's evolving from when I first was there, and I've been there three years now, um, it was largely on television and a bit of radio. More and more, it's internet-based stuff. And how much we can regulate that, particularly when it's not necessarily in Australia-based that's becoming an interesting dimension. But uh, it is a self-regulatory system and there's a lot of criticisms about that because it is self-regulatory. And so, but, um, but nonetheless, it's an interesting area and it's one where food issues often come up, although mm. the majority of the complaints are often about nudity, sex, violence, um, objectification of women. They're not necessarily, you know, food or nutrition-related issues. Mm. Um, but they wanted someone with a bit of knowledge about food industry. It well, wasn't food industry, but food and public health, I suppose. There's one um, medico on the board as well. Um, and I guess my work, having been in food standards in Fazans on the board of Fazans for six years, meant I had some understanding of the regulatory system of food in Australia as well. And so that uh, was relevant there. So I'm, I'm enjoying that that work. Um, but I'm not really trying to take on too much else outside of that now. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, I think there's a time when people have to step back. I was very lucky. I came into the profession at a time when there were only like about less than a handful, of less than six or seven people who had PhDs as dietitians mm. in the country. Now there are, I don't know how many, you know, a hundred? Hundreds, more, yeah. yeah. Hundreds. Mm. So the profession is well you know, looking at well entrenched and looking after its own directions. And I think it's important that people like me who have, you know, had a great opportunity to 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 have a career in this in this um, profession, step aside and let other people take on those roles. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in, you know, the advertising standards, your thoughts on, you know, sometimes we tend to be very dietetic focused, but I think we need to be in looking externally at other groups, how important do you think that is in terms of being involved in other things outside of dietetics? 
Look, I think everybody has their own natural level of energy and what you can what you can do. I mean, I I did I worked for a while on the TGA Complementary Medicines mm-hmm. Advisory Committee as well, which I found a very interesting group, although rather frustrating in the sense that it wasn't re- it was purely advisory. It didn't really actually have any power mm-hmm. to to make um, final decisions, whereas the Fazans one was much more about making decisions. Um, look, I think people should just follow where they find their own interests. Mm-hmm. Um, my interests have been in in food service and food standards and regulatory issues, and I find that really interesting. But one area perhaps of practice that I never got involved in and I always had hankered about was in um, sort of third world Mm-hmm. Uh, nutrition, I mean, that's a bit of a pejorative term, but mm-hmm. perhaps, you know, doing – and that may be something that I do on a voluntary basis mm-hmm. sometime in the future still, yeah, yeah. Um, if, if not actually, you know, maybe more in terms of training or mm-hmm. teaching, I mm-hmm. don't know. Mm-hmm. So I still see that as a possibility in the mm-hmm. future. Mm-hmm. And you – I know we're fortunate to – you mentioned Joe Rogers earlier, you know, one of the pioneers and greats of the profession, and it sounds like you had it – you were – amongst a few of them with Fred Clements and Stuart Troswell. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that time and what you, you said she influenced you greatly? I'm just wondering yeah. if you could tell us a little bit about she, that. Yes. I mean, she was an outstanding person and she was one of that generation of dietitians who devoted their whole life. Joe jo worked her whole dietetic life at Prince Alfred Hospital. So she went, she trained as a dietitian in 46 at the hospital because it was hospital-based training in those times. She became chief dietitian in 1948 and she stayed on for all of her life until she retired and she took on the role of food service manager in the 60s. So she was actually an influential person both as a, a clinician but also as a food service manager and quite innovative in the food service manager. She she introduced, you know, computerised systems quite early on in, in the thing. But when I look back, it was not that role so much, although that's how I got to work with her, but it was perhaps her public health work. So she had this role as chief dietitian uh, and she was very innovative in extending that, like say established dietetic departments and a number of other hospitals on a regional basis, sending out dietitians to work in new hospitals and establish new departments. But she also um, was involved in NHMRC Food Standards Committee. She chaired the Nutrition Task Force of the Better Health Commission. And most importantly, she founded the Australian Nutrition Foundation, which is mm-hmm. now Nutrition um, Nutrition Australia. Mm-hmm. So Many people be aware of the healthy diet pyramid. She created that, you know. She made it up and promoted it, and uh, and she worked with food industry in getting the the ANF, the Australian Nutrition Foundation, as it was then, funded and and up and running um, to provide good nutrition education material, both for dietitians to use, but for schools and the various mm. other areas to use. And of course, she wrote, she wrote a number of textbooks. Yeah. She co-authored a number with, uh, with Fred, you and your food, which is one that she did with Fred Clements, went through six editions, was used in high schools all around Australia. Mm-hmm. And she was president of the, what was then the Australian Dietetic Council. Um, she served on the overseas panel of 
the, the expert panel on dietetics, so looking at overseas qualifications. So she did all sorts of things. And I followed her in many of those. You know, I, I was also on Noosa for a while looking at overseas trained dietitians. Um, I was on Fazan's. And so, and she, and she taught into the course at, at mm. uh, University of uh, Sydney. Mm. So she was somebody who was passionate and far-sighted and she was a great communicator um, uh, who could really talk with people. She was the daughter of a shopkeeper and so I think she could talk with people at a very, not a basic Mm. level, but at an understandable level Mm. and talk to them in food terms Mm -hmm. rather than Mm -hmm. in science terms that Mm -hmm. was very appealing and practical. Mm. Um, So um, I, I found her energy and her innovative approach she was never somebody who just sat around and continued to do the same thing she mm. was always doing something new and her writing i mean you i always wondered how she fitted it into so much but she would get up early in the morning and she wasn't a computer-based person at all she would hand write you know a chapter and she'd come to work in the morning and hand that to the secretary who'd type <laughs> that up so that'd be another chapter of another book or, wow. or something yeah. um, that she'd done before breakfast before she came to work yeah. Amazing. So, but, yeah. I mean, she wasn't the only one because the other person who was around there at that time was um, Joan Woodhill. Yes. Who'd been, um, I mean, I, I didn't work with her, but I know I knew her and, and occasionally met with her and she was very supportive when I started my PhD and I sort of said, oh, I'm not sure I'm ever going to finish that. And she said, of course you will. Of course <laughs> you will. But she, I mean, she was in a way even more impressive because she's a person who, she was the first um, New South Wales trained dietitian. Mm-hmm. Um, and she went off and did a PhD at Harvard. Um, mm. It wasn't a PhD. It was a, what was it, a doctor of public health, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, went off and did um, nutrition surveys in Iraq, did a whole mm. lot of research on food allergies. Mm. So these were amazing mm. women, I yeah. think, um, who came through in that era of the 40s, mm. um, you know, and a, a time when not too many women were studying science anyway, mm. and then went on and became sort of the peak of the profession and yeah. great leaders. So, yeah. and she was very, she was very much an internationalist too. Mm. Um, she was the one who brought the ICD to Australia in 1977, okay. I think, and and so International Congress was here just the year before I trained, so mm. I missed it, but it was held at the Opera House. Oh wow. So I had I had these sort of women yeah you were very fortunate great, yeah um, great models to yeah. follow. we have a lot yeah. to thank them for setting up the great foundations that we've got today. Um, mm. But I know you also were in a, a leading role as the president of DAA two thousand to two thousand and three. I was actually <laughs> overseas at the time, so I don't remember a lot of it. Um, <laughs> Not sure that I do. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing. What interestingly, looking back, I'm still as far. I'm pretty certain I'm the only male president of the association. I mean, we have a small proportion of males. Yeah, except Phil, Phil Jumps this year. Uh, yeah, Phil Jumps just became this year. Has he? Yes, oh, okay. yes, yes. Right, I should know that, yeah. shouldn't I? Right. Um, but before that, yes. So, but nonetheless, it's interesting that we are su- such a female-dominated mm-hmm. profession still. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never quite understood why? Yeah, um, I was going to ask you that next. Yeah, yeah well, it's an interesting question because when you look at um, chefs, mm-hmm. it's not the case. Mm-hmm. So the food area, you know, males and, and science, a lot of males do science, mm-hmm. and, and, and other professions have changed like physiotherapy and nursing. 
much higher proportions of males now than there used to be. Mm. I don't know whether it's a hangover from the idea of home economics or something like mm. that, that that has stopped people. But, you know, despite the um, the efforts of everyone to try and change that, it really the proportion hasn't changed in the whole of my professional career. It's about mm. 6%. That's right. So I think that's a bit unfortunate, but it's not... It hasn't held the profession back, I don't think. You don't think so? I was going to ask you. Do you think it limits us in any way? Look, I've worked with such wonderful mm. colleagues mm-hmm. um, that I don't. I couldn't say mm-hmm. that we would necessarily been better if they'd been if they'd been men in those roles. I don't mm-hmm. think so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think you know it, it's a shame that we're not getting as broad a range of yeah, people diversity as yeah. possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when, to, I was, mm-hmm. when I was the president, um, it was a time of uh, quite a lot of criticism about industry association mm-hmm. with uh, support for the association, which, which of course, still goes on. Um, now, that was at the time that I left Kellogg, so it was when I started working at the University of Wollongong. So I guess I felt I had an understanding of dietitians in, in the food industry. Um, but maybe I was seen as a bit of a uh, uh, an industry person mm. when I'd only recently left yeah. at that time, um, and so there was there was a bit of tension about that at the time. I mean, I can't say it really affected how my role. I mean, the role of the president is very was very much a managerial one in a way. I think it's become much more of a public role now than it was at that time. It was much more as a chairing the board, uh, some public public face, but not so much um, as it is now. One thing I did start, which has obviously continued, is the weekly newsletter to members because mm-hmm. that at that time mm-hmm. we didn't actually hear very much about what was going on. So mm-hmm. I said, no, we've got to actually be talking to members regularly, yeah, so yeah, yeah. let's have yeah. a regular you know, email. And the other thing that I... I think sort of started then was well, I certainly was pushing was much more of um, an emphasis on supporting evidence-based practice and and having some funding for members to do research. And so we actually started a I, I can't quite remember how we did it whether we had a call for expressions of interest, but Claire Collins was funded to do a review of of uh, practice in in obesity management mm-hmm. in Australia. Mm-hmm. And it sort of fed into some of the later clinical guidelines mm-hmm. that started. So when we started developing proper evidence-based mm-hmm. clinical guidelines, mm-hmm. it was sort of around yeah. that time. Yeah. Um, so they were probably, I mean, just the two things that I remember mm-hmm. um, from the time. I certainly, at that time, we were just becoming a much more professionally based and ex- and well-resourced office, so we had a much better setup than we had had in previous years. So a lot of the time was spent really on that administrative side of things rather than the professional side perhaps. Mm-hmm. So you've been fortunate to, you know, have a lot of leadership roles, with, you know, being DAA president and Fizance and being involved in the dietary guidelines, et cetera. Is there certain um, skills or things that you've done that you think led – to those positions for people aspiring to follow in your path? Um, I, I think to some extent you've just got to put your hand up and take on things. Um, and I think certainly the training within DAA helped. So 
in, in my food standards role, for example, having chaired the Food Standards Advisory Committee for many years and written lots of submissions to Fazans meant I knew what was going on, but that was something I was doing within DAA. Um, I guess, I, I mean, I was, I've, I've been on a lot of committees too uh, for, for DAA and those things are things that you do to support the profession but not necessarily get anything out of. But, of course, you do make a lot of personal contacts with people. And so a lot of my best friends and colleagues are people that I met through DA committees. I mean, Lynn Daniels is a great friend of mine and actually was here for dinner last night. Mm. She and I were doing our PhDs together at the same time, so we were great supporters. But we'd met when we were both on the DA board in the mid-'80s. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to sit across each other and roll our eyes when we disagreed with other people <laughs> on the board. So um, it, it was a great working at in DAA both at the state level and at the national level um, was a great way of developing networks mm-hmm. and, and meeting people, particularly from other states. We tend to be rather yeah. limited in the, in the range of people we meet if you just mm-hmm rely on your workplaces Mm -hmm. and one of the great things about the professional association is you meet people from all around the country Mm, exactly and working in different different settings altogether yeah totally agree and where do you think if i can ask you where do you think we need to move in the future as a profession do you have any thoughts on areas we should be focusing on or things what we should be doing differently or um look i think it's hard to make um either predictions or uh, rules for people. I, I do think the work that we did um, for the systematic reviews for the last dietary guidelines was a really big step forward. So, I mean, I was lucky to be involved in that with Margaret Allman for Farinelli and Claire Collins to lead that group, but we had like 30 dietitians working on those systematic reviews. So that was a big project. I mean, it brought in quite a lot of money, not that we actually made much of any profit out of it, but um, but as a profession for the NHMRC to be saying um, DAA is the one who's got the expertise to do these reviews for us, I think was a great step forward. I think we, in, in terms of individuals, I think we need to be thinking out, continuing to think about other places and new places that we can work. I've already talked about the food industry, but really politics is the other area. I mean, I think we've only ever... I've only been aware of one dietitian who's worked as a ministerial advisor Mm -hmm. uh, to the Minister for Health. Now, um, what a a wonderful opportunity that, and actually as a result of that, I don't know whether it was exclusively as a result of that, but we got Medicare funding of group Mm -hmm. education sessions. Um, So I think... That is one area I would like to see people more involved in. So not not perhaps as their work. I mean, there are some some jobs working in 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 government where people, you know, can have a role, but not in as a in the Department of Health as a nutrition expert, but actually in, as a real politician. Mm. So going in and trying to make broader policy changes. Mm. And I think edu- school education is the other area that yeah. I see as a great um, area of not so much need, but a great shame that we have so little influence there. And so, and there is such a dearth of practical 
skills being taught in schools these days. You know, early on in my career, dietitians and home economists used to work quite closely together and particularly Joe with the ANF used to do a lot of work with the Home Economics Association. Um, I don't really see that happening anymore and I see people coming out of schools now with very little practical understanding of food. Mm. Um, so I, I don't quite know how dietitians can get into that, whether it's you know training teachers or whether it's actually working more directly. Certainly in other countries, dietitians do that. In Japan, uh, dietitians are much more involved in, in school education. Mm. To me, they're opportunities. Mm. Uh, this is not to downplay the important continuing role in clinical services and public health areas you know i think they'll always be the bread and butter um but i think those other areas are ones that people could be looking for clearly people are, are moving into journalism and uh and communication and private yeah. practice yeah. and communication generally um and i guess that's maybe the other thing to say is that communication is much more international these days anyway and so we should i wonder whether we should be thinking about whether we're just Australian dietitians or whether we're just dietitians for everybody yeah. in the world these days. Yeah, exactly. I know the Americans are definitely seeing their uh, – the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, Dietetics is definitely looking globally. Yeah, so I yeah. think we need to yeah. think more globally. Yeah. So what about – I think that's been yeah. a challenge because dietetics I mean, around the world is really still fairly different. So, mm. I mean, there's the sort of – the ones like us, if you like, you yeah. know, America, Canada, South Africa, Ireland, UK, right. New Zealand. Um, but there are a lot of other countries where dietitians are much more of a technical uh, role and less of a professional, you know, yes. uh, role. And that's a challenge to try and change, um, I think. I mean, I, I think um, Sandra Capra has been working hard at that at, in, at the ICD, mm. but it's not something that's going to be able to be forced on anybody. I mean, every country develops things their own. But but there is, an, in an increasingly globalised world, to have a sense of an international profession is something that would be good to try mm. and achieve. Yeah, definitely. So what about for you, Peter? Where to in the future? I know you like to travel. Have you got any upcoming travel plans? Yes, actually yes. we're going away for three months from yes. the end of August. So um, uh, it's more for pleasure than for work. Yes. Um, uh, going to the Netherlands and the UK, visiting a friend up in the Orkneys and seeing the four colours in New England. Fantastic. Um, and so no, that's the only plan, you know, travel plans at the moment. What I have been spending a bit of time on lately, and this is more of a vanity project, is uh, over many years I've been collecting old Australian cookbooks, mm. um, primarily from before the 1950s. So I have a collection of three or 400 of them. Mm. Wow. And I haven't ever quite known what to do with them. So now I've been th sitting down thinking, well, what am I actually going to do with this? So I'm, I'm actually thinking of writing, I don't know whether it'll be a book or just a series of papers about the concept of advice for invalid diets in, in cookbooks because early cookbooks had almost always, not always, but very often had a section on invalid cookery. Mm -hmm. And this is obviously at a time when many patients were, you know, looked after at home. There wasn't professional dietetic advice. And so cookbooks became where people went to to get information about what to feed people. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in what the, what actually was taught or told to people mm -hmm. to do 
how scientifically based it was or where it came from. My, my gut feeling is a lot of it's not at all scientifically based and it's sort of handed down recipes that often go back to the Middle Ages, um, you know, without any real foundation. And then how it was promulgated and when it stopped. Okay. It, it, I mean, some of them are still in cookbooks up until the 1990s, but most of it seemed mm-hmm. to stop around the 1950s, which, has, which is interesting because that's about the time that the the profession of dietetics really mm-hmm. started growing in Australia. So maybe the professionalisation of dietetics stopped the need for it to be in, in cookbooks. But mm-hmm. it's, a, it's So I've been spending a lot of time sort of every week at the National Library of Australia, not a lot of time, but sort of a day a week oh. over there. And um, I recently yeah, spent some time down at the Victorian um, State Library hunting out through all the books. So it's a really images. interesting area. And, but yeah, it, and the different food it's styles. It's a bit and, of a slow project yeah. at the moment. It's sort of, hmm. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. A lot of, lot of advertisements and, yeah, it's fun. A lot of, yes. There are lots of funny <laughs> things in there. So, but it's not all, yeah. as I've, I thought of the title, might be not just beef tea and junket. So it's like, not just that, but it, but there's a lot of beef there and junk Ooh. and barley water and toast water. Toast water is something I think oh, is okay. fabulous, okay. which is where you okay. make toast and you soak it in water and then you strain it and feed that flavoured <laughs> um, water. I know Emma Sterling also collects old cookbooks, so you may want to touch base with her and see if she's got any <laughs> ones that you haven't seen yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so mm. much, Peter. It's been a pleasure to chat to you today. Um, I think I know, you, know, yes. you yeah. talked about your greatest achievements from your perspective being the impact on students. You know, I think there's nothing greater than a teacher um, having an impact on the younger generation. So I think your legacy will live on there and um, the public health, obviously, with changing the food supply you mentioned as well. So you've managed to work in a number of different areas and have a great impact on the dietetic profession. So thank you for that and thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Exactly, exactly. I'm sure we will. Thanks, Marie. It's been great to chat and to reminisce a bit. (laughs) See you at some future meetings, no doubt. Thank you as well to all the listeners for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, we love receiving your feedback and also would love to hear what you think of the show. So if you could leave a review for us and also pass this podcast on to your colleagues and friends, it would be much appreciated. Thanks again and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Dietitian Connection podcast. Podcast.